0: Good morning everyone, it's great to be with you today. My name is Carl, I'm the pastor at Trinity Church Only. Thank you for having me in your lounge room, or at least at your dining room table, or wherever you are watching church online today. Today is one of those great passages in the Bible, but it's also one of those passages that can be a bit hard to read. It's hard because it uses the word submission. And I want to acknowledge up front this morning that These words in this passage have been applied in terrible ways in the past. But I think it's also fair to say that these words have more recently been ignored or dismissed as being irrelevant to the modern world. I hope you see today that these words are not irrelevant. But before I start, I want to be really clear today. Husbands, if you're expecting this passage to to justify any sort of oppression towards your wife or any other woman, Stop. Please speak to someone about that and get help. Because there's no justification for that sort of behaviour in this passage, or indeed in any part of the Bible. And here at Trinity Church, we want to be a church that stands against injustice and oppression and abuse. Because we think that's part of what it means to follow after Jesus. Today, I'm really grateful to be able to benefit from a talk that Andrew Heard recently gave on this chapter of the Bible. Andrew very helpfully pointed out the big idea of this passage, and I hope that becomes clear to you today also. Well, given all of that preamble, here's where I want to go this morning as we work our way through this passage. I want to do three things with you. Firstly, I want us to look at the immediate context of this passage. Secondly, I want us to see that there are two pairs of relationships on view in these verses, 22 to 33 particularly. And I want us to see how each pair of relationship sheds light on the other. And then finally, thirdly and finally, I just want to ask with you, where does that leave all of us? Where does that leave us? So firstly, I want you to see the immediate context of this passage. Remember that we're working our way through Ephesians. In the first three chapters, we saw Paul lay down his theological foundation. And then starting in chapter 4, we've seen him apply what he said to the way that we live our lives today. And Paul's big idea here is that in Christ, we have been made alive. He's made us a new humanity, and now we're to start living that way. Paul says... Throw off the old way of doing things. Like throw off that old pair of shoes and put on the new. In chapter 5, in verse 18, we see that throwing away the old way of life means throwing away drunkenness and the associated behaviours that go with that. And in its place, we're to be filled with the Spirit. And Paul lists four activities that kind of explain what it means to be filled with the Spirit includes speaking to one another and singing and making music to one another and giving thanks to God. But perhaps there's a fifth aspect to being filled with the Spirit. If you've got an NIV Bible with you this morning, I'd love you to open it to chapter 5 of Ephesians. And you'll see a paragraph break after verse 20. Some other versions of the Bible, like the English Standard Version, put the paragraph break after verse 21. There they want to try and communicate that submitting to one another out of reverence to Christ is also an outworking of being filled with the Spirit, just like singing and making music in the Spirit. I think if we look at the passage this way, that helps us understand what Paul means by submission. It's a gift that we're able to give because we're filled with the Spirit. See, often submitting or submission, is a word that many of us will recoil from. And in part, I think that's probably due to the connotations of power and control that that lurk around the word submission. But as I see it at least, submission is not the same as oppression. This week I read these words in a blog that kind of crystallised my thinking of this. This is what the word said. Submission is a gift that one person chooses to give to another person. By contrast, oppression is the is the act of extracting something from a person against their will. Here in verse 21, each of us is being called to submit to each other as an outworking I think of being filled with the spirit. It's a gift that we can all give. Now, I'm not sure if you've caught up with this news yet, but in New South Wales and Victoria, churches are slowly starting to return to -to face-to-face meetings, but they have been prohibited from singing when they get together. The thought is that singing is one of those activities that might spread droplets and hence might spread the coronavirus between people, and so singing has been banned or outlawed in churches. I've been wondering this week, what would be left in a church when we gather together if we couldn't sing? And speak to one another in hymns and psalms. But submitting, that's not been banned. (laughs) Terrific, I hear you say. Just what we wanted. Because no one really likes to submit, do they? But I want to remind you this morning of the example of Jesus. See, he gave his very life as a gift. Will you walk with him? I don't mean here will you be a doormat, but I do want you to consider others and care for them as best as you can. Well, back in Ephesians, I want you to see that structurally verse 21 is also a bridge between the Spirit and what lies next. But it also seems to be kind of a summary or a capstone. And if it is, then all of us should submit to one another out of reverence to Christ is the foundation point with which we launch into the next section, verses 22 to 23. Now, at first glance, these verses seem to be speaking to wives first, And then husbands. As I see it, the bulk of the instructions here are for husbands, even if the passage does start by speaking to wives first. So if the bulk of this passage is directed toward husbands, let's have a look at the words to husbands first. And we see that starting in verse 25. I'm going to read to you from verse 25. Paul says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So husbands, here's the command, love your wives. But as soon as Paul said that, he then goes on to talk about Christ and the church. Indeed, it's Christ and the church that's on view in verses 26 and 27. I'm going to keep reading so you can see this. This is what it says. Christ gave himself up to make her the church holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless you see what paul's doing here then in verse 28 he returns back to husbands with these words this is what he says in the same way husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies he who loves his wife loves himself After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body. And now look, he goes back to Christ and the church again. This is what he says. Just as Christ does the church, for we are all members of his body. In verse 31, Paul quotes from Genesis chapter 2. Remember, Genesis chapter 2 is right back at the start of the Bible in the time of the creation account. And this is the quote. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. Here's a question I'd like you to think through. What is the mystery that's on view here? Surely it's not the joining of a husband and wife in one flesh. No, I think the mystery really is the union that Christ enjoys with the church, and indeed, Paul will go on to say that in the very next sentence, where he says, but I am talking about Christ and the church. So here's another question then. What are verses 21 to 33 really about? See, certainly they are about marriage and the relationship between a husband and his wife. But there's another relationship on view here in these verses the relationship between Christ and the church. Can you see how these verses kind of address both of those relationships? And if we simply look at the number of words that are addressing each of the relationships, the weight or the emphasis in this passage is squarely on helping us to understand the relationship between Christ and the church. And so it would be logical, I think, then to conclude that Jesus' relationship with the church is Paul's big and main idea in this passage. Are you with me still? I hope so. But here's the problem, the context. See, Paul is addressing how we live as members of the new humanity. So surely in this section of the book, he should be helping us to see how we're to live, not giving us more information on theology. So then, how do we make sense of all of this? Well here's what I think is going on and again I'm thankful to Andrew Hurd for the sermon uh, that he preached recently on this and I'm standing firmly on his shoulders although of course if I misstep and fall off his shoulders that's, that's all my own fault. Bear with me please. The relationship between husbands and their wives is an earthly fleshy relationship that we all know and understand. That relationship has a number of purposes. Procreation, companionship but also I think part of the purpose of marriage is to illustrate or to point out the sort of relationship that Christ has with the church. These two relationships between husband and wife on one hand and Christ and the church on the other hand are interconnected or or interwoven. But I think what's happening here is this. The union of human marriage points to the union of Christ and the Church. So marriage is a signpost or an image of the relationship that exists between Christ and the Church. And yet, the ultimate relationship, the prototype or the standard, that's not human marriage. Rather, that's the relationship between Christ and the Church. Let me try and explain what I mean by introducing you to my skateboard. Just give me a sec while I go and grab it. So here's my skateboard, and in my house this skateboard has quite a bit of history actually. See, back in 2015 I was riding it down the street and I was going too fast. My aim was to make a big loop at the end of the street, but instead I fell off and I broke the tip of my elbow off, much to the amusement of the rest of my family, because Dad was again doing something stupid, just like the 15 year old that he really wasn't. But that's not got anything to do with the illustration. I bought this skateboard because I love snowboarding and without snow this is about the closest experience you can have to snowboarding. See it's got a a low slung deck and big wheels, it's just designed to ride like a snowboard on the ground. And if you've ever been snowboarding before you'll know what a great feeling it is to ride down the hill in the snow on a snowboard and this board Although it won't replicate exactly what snowboarding's like, it'll give you the feeling. But I've got to be honest, it's actually nowhere near as good as riding on a snowboard. And also, if you're a pure skateboarder, then this board's going to let you down in that area as well because you can't do tricks with this board. The wheels are too big and the deck's all shaped wrong. So it's not much of a good skateboard either. But I want you to imagine for a moment that you've been out snowboarding and really enjoyed that experience. And you come home to a hot Adelaide summer and you start looking for a way to explain what snowboarding is like. And if you're doing that, you might end up getting a skateboard just like this. See, this skateboard will help you understand a little bit what snowboarding is like. Today, I think what Paul is saying is the relationship in marriage between a husband and wife Is a bit like the relationship between Christ and the church. Seeing this skateboard helps you understand snowboarding. Seeing a husband relating to his wife helps us see how Christ relates to the church. Can you see how these two relationships between marriage and Christ and the church are related? But you might ask then, what does this mean practically? How does the love that Christ has for the church shape the way that a husband might love his wife? Well, of course, we read in this passage that Christ gave himself up. The husband's love is therefore sacrificial. But I think there's more to it than just that. See, the husband's love, I think, from this passage is to be almost ontological Because that's what Jesus' love for the church is. I'll read to you a little from a book written by Don Carson. And full disclosure here, Andrew Heard led me to this. He also read this section of the book in the sermon that he preached on this topic. But look, it's really helpful for you, so I think I want to share it with you as well. So the book that I'm reading from today is called The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God, and it's written by Don Carson. He gives us a picture of what God's love is like in this book. And this is how he does it. He says this. Picture Charles and Susan walking hand in hand down at the beach at the end of the academic year. The breeze is blowing gently and the pressure of the semester has dissipated. They've kicked off their sandals and the wet sand is squishing between their toes. Charles turns to Susan, gazes deeply into her large hazel eyes and says... Susan, I love you. I really do. So here's the question. What does he mean? What does Charles mean when he says this? Well, in a day and age that we're in, he may mean nothing more than he feels like testosterone on legs and he wants to go to bed with her. But if we assume he has even a bit more decency than that, let alone Christian virtue, the least he means is something like this. Susan, you mean... Everything to me. I can't live without you. Your smile poleaxes me from 50 yards. Your sparkling good humour. Your beautiful eyes. The scent of your hair. Everything about you transfixes me. I love you. Do you think he means that? I reckon he probably means something along those lines. Don Carson goes on to say. What he certainly does not mean is something like this. Susan... Quite frankly, you have such a bad case of bad breath, it would embarrass a herd of unwashed garlic-eating elephants. Your nose is so bulbous you belong in the cartoons. Your hair is greasy enough to lubricate an 18-wheeler. Your knees are so disjointed you make a camel look elegant. Your personality makes Attila the Hun and Genghis Khan look like wimps. But I love you. It's not what he means, is it? So now, when God comes to us and says, I love you, or when Christ demonstrates his love for the church, what does he mean? Does he mean something like this? You mean everything to me. I can't live without you. Your personality, your witty conversation, your beauty, your smile, everything about you transfixes me. Heaven would be boring without you. I love you. Is that what God means when he says, I love you? Well, I'm going to skip a few few words, but let me keep on reading. This is what Carson says God means when he says he loves us. Morally speaking, you are the people of the bad breath and the bulbous nose and the greasy hair and the disjointed knees and the abominable personality. Your sins have made you disgustingly ugly, but I love you anyway. Not because you're attractive, but because it is my nature to love. And in the case of the elect, that's the people who Paul is writing this letter to in the Ephesian church. God adds, I have set my affection on you from before the foundation of the universe. Not because you are wiser or better or stronger than others, but because in grace I chose to love you. You are mine. And you will be transformed. Nothing in all creation can separate you from my love mediated through Jesus Christ. It's a great picture, isn't it? I want you to see this is what we read in Ephesians. You were dead in your transgressions and sins, but God made you alive. It's the same story, isn't it? Husbands, that is the ideal. That's the standard. And you know what? We should try to get there. But I don't think we probably ever will, because marriage is really just a pointer as a relationship. The bigger, the far better, the more beautiful relationship is between Christ and his church. So a third point I want to look at today, what does this all mean for us? Well, one of the questions I think we need to ask, having looked at this passage, is what role does culture play in our reading of this passage? Now, I'm sure that life and culture was different back in Paul's day. And culture will have an impact on the way in which the relationship of marriage is conducted and worked out. But here's the thing about culture. By taking us back to Genesis chapter 2, as he does, I think Paul's saying that right from the very start of creation, marriage was always, always intended to be a signpost for the relationship that Jesus would one day have with the church. Marriage then extends beyond and through culture and therefore we've got to be careful not to let culture influence marriage too much. I think this is also part of the reason why we should have a a very high view on marriage as a church. See, if marriage is an illustration of Christ and the church, then we should value marriage and see it as important. For those of us who are married, that means we should work on our married relationships so that they are better pointers towards the relationship that Christ has with the church. And yet, and Andrew Herb made this point, and I think it's really well put, if marriage is just a pointer to the bigger and the more perfect relationship of Christ and the church, then perhaps we need to remember that that marriage is is not the ultimate aim or the ultimate destination of people. Perhaps our society has just too much wrapped up in the idea of marriage. I've got four kids. I want them to be happy. And and perhaps part of that means that in some way I'd like them to get married one day. But from this passage, I think what I really should want for them is the experience of the much better relationship. That's the relationship between Christ and the church. See, that's the far more important relationship than a husband and wife relationship. For the relationship between Christ and the church, that's the ultimate relationship. Now we've covered a lot of ground today and waded through some pretty difficult material and what I think is a hard passage in some ways. Today you can go away seeing the importance of marriage. I hope you've seen that at least one of the purposes of marriage is to help us understand the mystery that is the relationship between Christ and Christ. And the church. Now there's more to go in this section in what has been called the Household Code. Uh, there's instructions that Paul gives for children and for slaves. If you want to spend some time working through those passages, maybe you can do that in your community groups. If you're not in a community group yet, uh, Jason Lim has put some terrific notes and some great studies together on this passage. If you flick me an email, I'd love to send those notes uh, on to you. For now, let me pray for us. Father God, we give you thanks for your goodness to us. We give you thanks for the example of Jesus, for his humility, for his willingness to suffer for our sake. Father, we thank you for our marriages. We ask that you would help the marriages at Trinity Church only to be strengthened, that they would be better signposts towards the ultimate relationship between Christ and the Church. And Father, we ask that you would help us to value that relationship above all else. Help us to long to be part of your family and there to live for you. In Jesus' name, Amen.